One thing I think is really important is to notice how interconnected we are, where compassion then naturally can emerge. And just the profound nature of that awareness can touch upon so many different problems that we're all facing. So the intentional dissolution of that me versus them attitude that evolution has hardwired into us, by the way, it really is probably one of the most effective things for pulling on the threads of that tapestry of suffering that are hurting so many. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. My guest today is biological anthropologist and contemplative researcher Jenny Mascaro. Jenny is an associate professor at Emory University School of Medicine and also lead scientist for spiritual health in the Emory Woodruff Health Sciences Center. Her research weaves together meditation, compassion, biology, psychology, and healthcare. And as you'll hear in today's episode, she's breaking new ground in how we can study compassion in the real world. I've been lucky enough to know Jenny for many years, and her work has always struck me as cutting edge. She's really pushing the boundaries and thinking about ways that we can measure these key constructs like compassion, which is a really critical issue for contemplative science because it's not something that you can easily directly observe. So I love diving into this with her in this episode. A few highlights from the show. Jenny offers some clarity on the definition of compassion and how it relates to empathy. There are a lot of links here to previous episodes like with Roshi Joan Halifax and Mathieu Ricard. If you want to dive deeper, you can just scroll back in your feed and check those out as well. We discuss the biological basis of compassion and what we're learning about how compassion can be influenced by societal norms. This takes us to the topic of training compassion, which is Jenny's expertise. And she shares about the main program she's been studying for well over a decade now, cognitively based compassion training. And as she's unpacking the skills trained in this program, we get into an interesting discussion about the complexity of self-compassion. This is something that's often debated in our field, and Jenny gives a really helpful explanation of the nuance there. In the second half of the show, we dive into Jenny's fascinating work in the healthcare system working with hospital chaplains. If you're not familiar with chaplains, as I wasn't, she gives a great overview of their important work supporting both patients and staff in hospital settings in many, many ways. And then we talk about how Jenny has incorporated compassion into Chaplin's education and how that leads to benefits for patients. Specifically, we get into her approach of linguistic analysis or looking at subtleties of language and how we might be able to use language as a measure of compassion as it shows up in human interactions. There's a lot more in the episode too and also in the show notes. So as always, check those out for more information on Jenny's work including a link to a really fantastic essay she wrote for our Insights Project. It's about the science of compassion. If you've ever had to interact with the healthcare system in the United States, and I'm sure in many other countries, you know firsthand what a stressful environment it is, which is actually counterproductive to promoting health. Bringing more compassion into this system is going to be crucial as we face the next decades. So I deeply appreciate Jenny's work in this arena, and underneath the numbers and the findings and the metrics, her work is moving us towards a deeper understanding of interconnectedness, of breaking down walls between self and other, which is really the most important work we can be doing. 
So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. It's my great pleasure to share with you Jenny Mascaro. It is my great pleasure to be joined today by Jenny Mascaro. Jenny, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's really nice to talk with you. I usually like to start with the background of the guest and understanding how they kind of got to be doing the work that they're doing. And one of the things that I appreciate so much about your work is the perspective you bring from anthropology and your training in anthropology. Um, it's such a, I think, needed and often overlooked perspective in contemplative science. So i um, really curious how you got interested in biological anthropology and then how the meditation part came into your work. Yeah, it was a very winding path, as most people's paths are. Um, so I have, for as long as I can remember, been really interested in animal cognition and in particular primate cognition. So um, through college and past college, I really was interested in studying primate social cognition and, and pro-social behavior with a lens towards evolutionary theory and trying to understand the evolution of these traits and skills that we often think of as uniquely human, but which are clearly traceable to our closest living relatives and more and more to many different species. So in college, I was uh, an anthropology major with a strong interest in um, you know, chimpanzee and bonobo social cognition. And I had planned to somehow study that. And I, I wasn't quite sure how, but I was reading every book that Franz de Waal wrote and couldn't get enough of, of reading about trying to understand, you know, do chimpanzees and our closest living relatives have empathy? Um, do they behave compassionately? How would we understand if they did? And so that was going to be the path. Um, and I took a long time off before graduate school, but when I finally found my way to graduate school, it was to a a biological anthropology program where I intended to do neuroimaging with chimpanzees. So Emory has a, a primate research center. They, at the time, had chimpanzees that they would do uh, pet scanning with. And so I, I came to Emory with that intention, and, and I set out to do uh, that type of research. Um, and pretty quickly in my first year in graduate school, I realized uh, a couple of things. One, um, really hard to do that research for a number, a number of reasons, um, both ethically and practically. And then the other thing that I realized was just how little we know about human social cognition and how interesting some of those questions are just with humans um, without even thinking about questions of evolution, um, or at least informed by questions of evolution, but just trying to get a basic understanding of, of what are the brain and body systems that support things like empathy and compassion and pro-social motivations. Um, so that was my very winding path. Um, and there were a number of other little dead ends uh, along the way, but but that's sort of the, the summary of it. That's awesome. And then, so where did the contemplation start to weave in? Yes. Um, so I had long had a, a personal interest in uh, contemplative practices, primarily mindfulness. Um, I was a, an anxious kid and also a very serious athlete. And the combination of high anxiety and very um, serious in any type of performance means that you seek out 
uh, ways to, uh, you know, handle anxiety and, and to try to, you know, optimize the, your way in the world. And so when I was in high school, I started to read books by Thich Nhat Hanh and, and started to do mindfulness practices primarily. Um, and then uh, sustained those, but parallel with starting graduate school, Emory had a number of incredibly innovative partnerships and research tracts that were just emerging. And I was just the luckiest person to find myself interested in questions of uh, social cognition and brain variation and these types of questions alongside, you know, seeing colleagues who are starting research programs to understand what happens when people embark on compassion meditation and mindfulness meditation? Uh, and so being alongside these dialogues with Tibetan Buddhists and Tibetan Buddhist scholars, you know, I, it just uh, was this natural pathway to, to sort of try to merge the two into what was my hope to be sort of a, a novel area of research. Yeah, well, it has been. That sounds like a really perfect uh, alignment of all of your interests. That's yeah. so awesome. It was, it was very lucky. <laughs> yeah. So your interests in, in social cognition and, and pro-social kind of stuff then really explains why you've ended up spending so much of your career studying compassion, which um, has been so fascinating. Um, so I'd love to dig into that with you. And maybe we can just start with some definitions, because I think it's a term that, you know, is thrown around a lot and people have different ideas of what it might mean. And there's also a lot of conflation sometimes with empathy. And in the scientific world, we tend to tease those apart. So can you speak a little bit to how you think about compassion from a scientific perspective? Sure. Um, so I generally use a definition that is consistent with people like Roshi Joan Halifax, who uh, define compassion as having various core elements, which are uh, an attention to someone who's suffering, uh, coupled with some type of empathic arousal. So to some extent, feeling their suffering, along with, and, and what seems to typify compassion is a motivation to help and an intention to help. Um, so at base, uh, that, that's the way I think of compassion and, um, and its relationship to other attributes or skills like empathy or sympathy. Um, so that motivation and intention to help aspect is crucial. And, and that's kind of how we think of it, at least to start with. Mm -hmm. And then along with that or, or um, moving out from there, there seem to be a number of other features and important conditions. Uh, but that seems to be the, the base definition that many in the field use and that, that I really like to use. Cool. So just to kind of flesh it out in terms of contrasting with empathy or d differentiating it from empathy. So like if a person uh, sees another person who is experiencing pain, for example, can you speak a little bit to what, what might happen subjectively for us in those different states? Yeah. So I think there is that attention and sort of salience of noticing that, that the other is in pain and that this is important. This is worth paying attention to. And then there is the, the empathy component, which is uh, to some extent or to some degree feeling that suffering, even if it's a fleeting sort of empathic overlap. 
but then what comes next is um, the, the phrase that I love in describing this is an appetitive drive to nurture or help. That's a phrase that comes from animal research on maternal caregiving. Um, so an appetitive drive to nurture, this, this sort of hunger or motivation to help, to do something, to comfort, to ease the suffering, to solve the problem. And, and I think, you know, phenomenologically or experientially, it, it comes as that, that real sort of drive or motivation uh, that feels like, uh, you know, I, I really want to help this being, this, this person or being. Mm. So it's not just kind of experiencing or, well, sympathizing is another word <laughs> that is sometimes thrown in, but experiencing a suffering with another person, but then there's this added component of the motivation to help. Right. That's what is uh, described theoretically. I think that's borne out in the, the research on empathy and compassion and, and how they are differentiated experientially and, and empirically. Going beyond just sitting with sort of an overlapping empathic experience, you know, going beyond that to some uh, real motivation and, and drive to, to act. And you spoke about you know, of course, your interest in evolutionary influences and biology and how primates come to have these pro-social motivations and things like that. So I know there's been a lot done around compassion in humans and evolutionary basis for that. Can you speak a little bit to what the current thinking is there? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think there are several lines of thought that are interesting with respect to that question. So one thing in trying to understand what compassion is and how the brain and body support compassion, one of the things that has helped with understanding that is looking at uh, mammalian caregiving. So the idea here is that um, with mammalian evolution, what typifies that evolutionary sequence of events was you have now a, a system of parental caregiving, and in most, most mammals, that's maternal caregiving, where moms are raising helpless uh, pups and need a system or a set of bodily systems to notice when that pup is in danger and suffering. You know, often that's through alarm calls and cries for help. And then this appetitive drive to help that um, sort of altricial offspring. And so one line of thought that comes from evolutionary biology and similar fields is trying to think through the evolution of those systems. Um, along with that is a scientific uh, need to understand how humans uh, have potentially elaborated on those systems. So is it the case that humans have those same systems just expanded, or are there other neural and cognitive systems overlaying on those more ancient mammalian systems that help us do what we do? Um, so that's one line of thought that goes along with thinking through the evolution of, of compassion and empathy. The other thing that I think is equally interesting that comes from anthropological thought is trying to understand human variation. So uh, anthropologists are often interested in questions of evolution, but alongside that are questions of just how flexible humans are throughout time and space, context, culture. And so 
part of that is recognizing and trying to understand the vast variability that we see and where does that come from? So alongside these questions of, of the evolution of compassion are really interesting questions of why is it that some people are more compassionate than others? Why is it that some contexts pull compassion from people and push it away uh, in, in other contexts? Um, and so some of these questions are interesting in an anthropological sense and point us to try to understand, you know, what are the things that people do that make them more compassionate, either explicitly or implicitly? What are the things that people do either explicitly or implicitly that make us less compassionate? So I would say those are the kind of two parallel lines of, of kind of anthropological interest uh, in this topic. Yeah, both of those are so interesting. So from the biological side, um, at least I've heard a lot of talk around like oxytocin and hormonal influences like that. And I'm sure there's many other um, biological factors that play in. And then I do think it's so fascinating from the more societal and cultural side and social side, what are the factors that can enhance our, or facilitate um, compassionate responses? And, and what is the role of, yeah, cultural norms? And, you know, I just think about the society, kind of Western industrialist capitalist society we live in. And um, you wrote a fantastic article for Mind and Life's um, Insights Project recently that I was looking back over. And I think you mentioned some things about um, work on priming and like if you think about, you know, self-focused things or efficiency, you're less likely to have pro-social or compassionate responses, which is, you know, kind of what our entire <laughs> society is based on. So what are what are some things that can help shift us in the social realm, cultural realm towards uh, compassionate responses? Yeah, um, it's a fantastic question. It's um, one of the main things that gets us out of the bed in the morning um, is, is to try to to understand those those kinds of questions. And so, one thing is, I think the two domains are certainly interrelated. And what I mean by that is um, this question of the hormonal systems and the neural systems that support compassion and empathy are not unrelated to the idea that these things are pushed and pulled and modified. Um, and from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense that compassion is modifiable and context dependent um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, evolution didn't shape us for romance. Uh, you know, it, it, evolution works on, you know, the process of natural selection. And often the result is going to be context dependent behavior. Um, especially among humans who are so variable and living in so many environments. Um, so back to our definition of compassion as having these core elements, I have, again, learned much of what I pretend to know from uh, Roshi John Halifax, who points to all of these other non-compassion elements that affect whether we're compassionate or not. And so those are things like, do we feel capable of being compassionate? Do we have a self-efficacy to behave compassionately? Do we have the knowledge about what can help in any given situation? And even further upstream are questions around who is kind of worthy of compassion. Uh, so are we judging that 
you know, the the person or the being that's suffering is is part of our in-group or our out-group, um, and are they someone that we should help? Um, so there are these contextual factors that influence um, whether we help or not, and whether we feel compassion or not. And the reason I started this uh, with the notion that that's not unrelated to questions of hormonal systems, it seems very clear that oxytocin may be a key neuropeptide that helps us understand that context-dependent nature. So early on, the research on oxytocin was like, okay, here's this love molecule that's going to make everyone uh, feel bonded and look one another in the eye and uh, feel compassionate towards one another. And more recently, the research indicates that it is perhaps best thought of as a neuropeptide that is related to in-group and out-group dynamics in really much more complex ways. That's fascinating about what we're learning about oxytocin and how it seems to actually almost enhance experiences of in-group or preferences or, you know, the ways that we treat people who we think of as in-group members more compassionately. And yeah, so that just makes me think about efforts to expand, you know, who we consider our in-group, right? And then, of course, that makes me think of a lot of the work that you've done with compassion training. And and so that leads us into um, the next thing I wanted to chat with you about, which is um, the idea that compassion is trainable, right? And And these programs that you've been working with to help different populations engage more with compassion. And do you want to share about the programs you've been using? Sure. Yes, absolutely. And you're so right that uh, as soon as we start thinking about all of these factors that influence whether we're compassionate or not, um, and who we're compassionate towards and when, we start to be able to identify factors that can help us train up compassion. And so... We, for about the last 15 years, uh, have been studying a compassion intervention that was inspired by and developed from a a very, very old Tibetan Buddhist tradition uh, called the Lojong or mind training tradition at Emory. As I, I said earlier, I was just very much right place, right time, just as they were starting to develop and manualize and research this program. The amazing story behind it that I think is germane to our current day is that there was a, a student who approached um, a Tibetan Buddhist scholar at, at Emory because there was a, a suicide on campus. And the student mm. came, uh, approached Geshe Lipsang uh, Negi and said, uh, you know, is there something that you can do that you could bring uh, for the students because there's so much suffering? And so cognitively based compassion training, CBCT, was born from that discussion and, and from that student's amazing insight. And we've been studying it for about the last uh, almost 20 years at this point, uh, amazingly enough. Um, And and so this is a manualized intervention that works off of that exact idea that compassion is, on the one hand, something that every human being is capable of by virtue of of being born uh, in a human body. We are capable of compassion. Um, But that is also trainable. And so it goes through a a, a sequence of exercises and and didactic uh, information to train up 
these various aspects and, and factors that we uh, that we know are important for enhancing compassion. And to your point, the idea here is to not just enhance compassion to the people that we may naturally feel compassion towards, but rather to see if we can expand our in-group to people for whom compassion may be very, very difficult. Um, and then the idea is that by training up these aspects and, and um, walking through these sort of mind training exercises, we naturally come to feel more compassion in more experiences and in more corners of our life and in a way that's kind of more sustainable. Um, so that's the research that that we've been doing. And, and um, really, it's been about trying to understand how can we bring this to people who could benefit and how can we do it in a way that's feasible uh, and palatable and accessible and then what happens to people when we do that. Um, so it's, it's yeah, it's a, a great joy to do that research. That's awesome. Um, do you want to step through the different kind of skills and concepts that are trained in the program? Sure, absolutely. Um, so cognitively based compassion training, uh, as I said, it, it emerges from this ancient Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and it walks through a series of didactic teachings and exercises in such a way that it begins with a foundational or nurturing moment, almost like a, an attachment prime mm. that calls people to sort of ground themselves in, in the experience of compassion and safe attachment. And then it proceeds to a strong component of attentional awareness and in training up attention uh, with the idea that the compassion elements of the training are going to be really difficult if we can't at least sit still and have uh, some attentional capacity. So it begins with some mindfulness, mindfulness to breath or other somatic states, and then proceeds to sort of a, a mindfulness to mental contents. So in training the ability to have sort of those meta-awareness skills that let us notice our emotions, notice our, our mental contents, um, notice our, our physical experiences in a way that will then let us sit with the next components. So the next components being the compassion components, um, the first one is a, a self-compassion piece that walks through and cultivates an awareness and appreciation for ourselves as, as human beings and as fallible human beings. So an awareness of the things that get in our way, the things that cause us suffering, and an ability to feel compassion for ourselves such that we have that motivation to, to care for ourselves. And that's thought to be really fundamental for all kinds of reasons, not least of which because it allows us to then extend that compassion outward, uh, which is very difficult to do when, when we can't extend it to ourselves. Hmm. Is that a hard, a particularly hard section for Westerners to approach? I hear a lot about people struggling with self-compassion. It's such an interesting and hugely complex question. Um, and, and I know that uh, I've heard Buddhist scholars debate this notion of self-compassion. Uh, Buddhist scholars like John Donne, and I, I would be very hesitant to mess up an answer to that question, which would be very easy to do. But just to say that this question of, of whether Westerners in particular have trouble with it, I'm not sure, but I think humans mm -hmm. have trouble with it. 
the the tendency to judge is so hardwired in us for everything and most potently to judge ourselves. Um, so the tendency to have trouble extending compassion to ourselves in such a way that allows us to to move on and, and feel compassion for others does seem to be quite difficult. Um, and it's, I think, another piece of an answer that I, I think is equally important is that part of the reason it's, it's a tricky answer is because self-compassion I often gets, I think, confused a little bit, you know, as something that is easy or um, that is like synonymous with self-care. Um, mm. I think it's not antagonistic to self-care, but it, it's not the same thing as cutting yourself a break and, and leaving it there. I think a large part of it and a large part of it within CBCT is really cultivating the motivation and intention to emerge from the things that we do to cause ourselves suffering. And that is mm. very difficult. And it makes it such that we have exercises and, and things that we need to do. Um, it, it's not a it's not a passive thing. Oh, I really appreciate that nuance. Uh, the way you just define that as the commitment to freeing ourselves from suffering. That's um, I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about self compassion. So um, sorry, I, I derailed you. You were talking about the steps, right? So after self compassion, the next sequence are really compassion elements. So contemplation of and exercises to cultivate feelings of interdependence and interconnectedness. So noticing how interconnected we are in every second of our lives. Another element is moving beyond sort of the, the reification or the cartoonization of the, the people that we interact with and are connected with. So moving beyond thinking of people as uh, friends or enemies, um, and moving beyond these sort of two-dimensional cartoon versions uh, of the people around us. And then moving towards uh, cultivating an endearment, a sense of care and concern and empathy for those people that we are so intimately connected with. And then the final step is um, sort of an engaged compassion element. So really setting an intention to not just sit with the empathy and care we have for others, but to really set intentions to actively engage compassionately with those others. Um, and so the idea is by stepping through these thought exercises as well as these contemplative exercises, compassion and engaged compassion sort of naturally emerges. I would love to hear about um, a currently really large project that you've been working on in the medical system and hospital systems with chaplains. Um, so wherever you want to start with that, maybe it'd be helpful for our audience just to understand what chaplains are, what they do, because um, I know actually really before engaging with, with your research, I wasn't too familiar myself with this amazing group of folks. 
Yeah, and uh, neither was I. Um, This is another case in my research career where I was um, in the right place at the right time and incredibly fortunate. So I started to do research in the School of Medicine, and the real focus and impetus moved and shifted slightly from what's often, you know, sort of a basic science framework to a more applied set of research projects. So moving beyond what happens in the brain when people do compassion meditation to questions of how can we bring these practices that seem to have a a good evidence base for helping people, how can we bring those into novel places in medicine where there is so much suffering and where there's so much suffering both from patients and their family, but also as we have seen during the pandemic from the providers and and all the people who care for patients. Mm. And and so I started, we started that line of research and uh, a very early partnership became one with the spiritual health department in our very, very large hospital system. So um, the spiritual health department at Emory oversees chaplains who work in the hospital system, as well as a training program to train new hospital chaplains. And I didn't know much about hospital chaplains uh, in advance of doing this research either, but they are a group of healthcare professionals that, first off, are present in many hospital systems. So something like 70% of hospitals have a chaplaincy service, and they are really called to and trained to recognize sort of the vast landscape of suffering that patients experience. And more and more, that is a diversity of patients. So not just let's get a Christian chaplain to help Christian patients, but rather this is a group of healthcare professionals who are trained and employed to help people of all faiths or of of no faith who are suffering. Wow. So do they learn about lots of different religions? So it's interesting. They tend to come from a very deep personal faith tradition. And by and large, that is a a Christian faith tradition, at least uh, in our, our neck of the woods. But a huge part of the training is learning how to address the suffering of patients of of other faiths. So listening to, advocating for, appreciating, understanding, um, connecting with people based on their faith and, and, and their needs, or offering help beyond spiritual and religious concerns. So the other thing that um, is really important that, that I've come to realize about what they do is in our modern biomedical system where the demands of all of the different types of clinicians are increasingly bombarded <laughs> um, and, and physicians, nurses, but even social workers are so often called to address other aspects of patient needs beyond the spiritual and emotional and social concerns, it is often chaplains who are in the place to address those needs. So um, modern chaplains are not just addressing, you know, religious and spiritual needs, but they are often doing a lot of socio-emotional care. And even beyond that, they're doing a lot of helping patients connect with 
doctors and identifying places of misunderstanding or mistrust. Um, They are doing so much of the work that helps patients feel heard and understand their situation uh, much more practical in nature than I would have ever realized. So, um, so, so they're this incredible group working on our hospital systems, and we have just had this amazing partnership with spiritual health in trying to understand how the wisdom and practices that come from a Tibetan Buddhist background and come from this cognitively based compassion training program that we've been working with, how can we leverage that in partnership with spiritual health? And so that's sort of an overview of what we've been doing. And then we have a number of of really fun projects along those lines. Yeah. So how did this work get started? Were you training the chaplains themselves um, in the beginning? Exactly. Um, So it was this very organic uh, partnership where it began with a really simple recognition on the part of the spiritual health faculty who were training new chaplains that CBCT might be a really wonderful addition to chaplaincy training. So, you know, the scientific question is, is this a really intentional research-based method for bolstering a resilient and broadly encompassing compassion that chaplains need. And so we did uh, some small pilot studies to incorporate CBCT into the training program for new hospital chaplains. And then this really amazing thing happened where chaplains started to report that they were using some of the thought experiments, some of the uh, exercises with their patients. So chaplains would report that they would start to work with a patient who was distressed because they felt like their family was ignoring them. And the chaplains started to report using these uh, ideas and exercises, especially to address feelings of isolation, feelings of anger that patients have towards the family members around them. And so we started to think really intentionally about whether there was a way to specifically merge what chaplains are doing and what they're called to do with some of these exercises and practices and content from CBCT. So we developed a a program that we uh, you know, we always have to come up with an acronym. So ours, <laughs> it, our the, the program that we research is called uh, Compassion Centered Spiritual Health, or CCSH. And the idea is that it is a, a, a real merging of spiritual health with cognitively based compassion training, such that chaplains in our system and, and increasingly in other systems are trained to conduct spiritual health consultations and interactions with patients um, with this new tool in their tool belt, with compassion-based exercises that they can bring to patients. But the other part of the program that's really fundamental is that it has a very intentional sequence of exercises that the chaplain does before even entering the room with the patient. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So there is this sort of sequence where the chaplain is doing uh, these deliberate, intentional things to bolster their endearment toward the patient they're about to see, to bolster their own calm, their own presence, their own self-efficacy and confidence towards helping the patient. 
And then they go into the room and there is a sequence of skills and behaviors and cognitions that the chaplain does to understand the patient, to meet them where they are, to identify their needs, and then to identify practices and things that they can bring to the patient to ease their suffering. And then that they can leave the patient with to continue to access after the chaplain leaves, to give them the skills that they can use throughout their hospital stay and beyond to um, feel connected, to feel safe, and, and to feel um, well. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, what's coming to mind is I feel like in some ways it's like um, teacher training, like you would train people to then be teachers of cognitively based compassion training or something like that, which is done in many different interventions. You know, you train teachers. But in this case, it, I've never heard anything quite like this. It's it's different because it's also really attending to the interpersonal dynamics that a chaplain finds himself in, just like you were describing that kind of preparation phase of how are they going to engage with this person. That's so fascinating. And it sounds like it could be so applicable in, in many different caregiving types of situations for doctors or staff or like therapists, or I can think of lots of different professions where this would be so useful. Anyway, that's amazing. Yeah, that's a great insight. And I think you're right. I think there are many, many analogous situations where someone is entering into a relationship with others and that relationship goes better when we are prepared in these ways. And the idea is that there can be this intentional way of, of preparing to ease into that relationship. And I, I think you're very right that that is both a part of other training programs, um, but also could be leveraged and, and could potentially be helpful in, in other, other domains. And it's almost without fail when I present our research I'm always nervous because I'm always nervous, um, but I'm, I'm especially nervous in biomedical contexts where the sort of stereotype is that doctors in the crowd may balk at some of this work, and it's without fail the opposite. Wow, I was going to ask you how it's received. Yeah, so one thing is that healthcare professionals, this isn't unanimously true, but are aware of chaplains and what they do and are very appreciative of what they do to help patients. So there's already an appreciation for what spiritual health clinicians or, or chaplains do. But there is also often a reaction that I get is, can we do this? Um, can we go through this training program? And so that I think will be a next step. Um, a first step is, is trying to understand if this works and, and if it does, how. But then if it does, um, is it something that others in these many pockets of healthcare could be trained in such that they, uh, you know, similarly have um, the, the sort of preparation to enter into these clinical relationships? Yeah. And now my mind is just going all over the place of thinking at like, oh, what about teachers or what about like police force or like Congress, <laughs> you know, politicians? Oh, so many professions are involved in, you know, you're going to come into contact with someone in this certain way. And um, to just put intention to that is, wow, I just, I love, I love what you all have developed. So yeah, what, what kinds of things have you been finding? So the 
research alongside the development of this program has been such a delight, in part because it's really pushed us to learn new methods and new ways of trying to understand if this is effective. Because although I came from a neuroimaging background, we're not going to be able to put patients into a scanner immediately after they interact with a chaplain. And yet, we want to try to understand the richness of what's happening in these interactions beyond just self-report. Um, self-report has a, a place and we use it for sure. Um, but especially for trying to understand a lot of these um, sort of interpersonal factors and, and dynamics and skills um, we don't have conscious access to. So it's really hard to self-report on how you're more compassionate if you're in with a patient. So one of the things that we have moved towards is doing uh, more ambulatory measurements because we are quite literally walking around the hospital shadowing chaplains. And a big part of that has been uh, ambulatory audio recordings where we will collect audio recordings of chaplain-patient interaction and try to identify both quantitatively and qualitatively what is happening in the room within that interaction that helps us understand whether there is benefit and, and how there's benefit. So the last, I would say, five years or so of our research has really been sort of doing a deep dive into some of these uh, linguistic assessment tools, um, because to my mind, I could be very wrong, but it's hard to think of a better way to feasibly tap into the richness of these interactions beyond understanding the the language and, and the words that people are using and the, the spaces that people are giving one another to speak and, and to hold really deep emotions and really difficult emotions. Um, so we've been really doing a lot of linguistic behavior and, and linguistic research to try to understand, you know, what what is helpful and, and how. And so that's an area of research that I'm very new to and, and learning a ton about, and it's really been just so fun. I think that is such a cool method of measuring and thinking about um, how we can assess compassion. Because like you said, it's a complicated construct to measure and self-report can only go so far um, for a lot of a lot of reasons. Uh, there's a lot of limitations there. So I love these kind of in the real world, in the moment assessments. So how does this work? Do you actually like come in with a little recorder or how, how is it? Because it seems like that might be invasive or, you know, yeah. once if they know they're being recorded, are they going to say something different? That kind of thing. Absolutely. And um, that's part of the reason we've moved to this method is because it is something that um, we can just pop an audio recorder into the chaplain's pocket and then we're not in the room. Um, so in some sense, it's less invasive because then researchers are not in the room when there is a, a consultation between these chaplains and the patients or the family members or the, the healthcare providers. Um, of course, it is in some ways invasive on both sides, right? So we obviously conduct informed consent with patients and with the chaplains. And the thing that we've 
come to realize in large part because of a huge wealth of research that's come before us is that when people are being audio recorded for research, they behave surprisingly naturally. We're pretty quick to forget that we're being recorded, especially in a context like this where you know, it's a professional environment where people are doing their jobs and they are focusing on what they're doing. Um, and then on the patient side where, you know, they have so much on their mind. Mm. So, you know, we have a lot of patients who don't consent to be in the research. And so we don't do research with them. And that may bias what we get. It may be that patients who are not wanting to participate in research like this are somehow different from patients who are willing to. But even if there is that bias, which we really do have to keep in mind, um, we are still able to, to learn a good bit. And I do think that what we hear from the chaplains is that, you know, maybe the first session or two that's recorded, they feel a little weird, and then they kind of get used to it and behave pretty naturally. What are some examples of the kinds of language, or you mentioned even space, just the kind of specific metrics that you can determine and, and what has this training do you see shifts from from this training? Yeah, so we're still digging into the research because I think I could analyze these data for the rest of my career quite yeah. easily. Um, but so far, some of the interesting things that we have learned are that there are clearly, from our research at least, types of language that seem to almost bridge a relationship between compassion and patient benefit. And by that, I mean... Um, what we see in the data is that when chaplains report that they are compassionate and when their patients then report a benefit from the chaplain's visit, we can see that there are certain types of language that seem to bridge that, um, that seem to, in, in scientific terms, mediate that relationship. It, that's sort of the mechanism by which, at least in part, compassion is being conveyed. And so the really interesting thing is that the types of language that seem to confer a benefit is sort of a other-oriented linguistic style. That's not a huge surprise. So for example, when chaplains use more we-us language compared to I-me language, patients get more of a benefit. Uh, when chaplains use more social language. So words like uh, together and connected, patients benefit. And the really interesting thing is that based on previous research, there's a, a pattern of linguistic behavior that seems to connect those two types of language, sort of an other focus and a, a social focus to sort of a confident leadership style of speaking. So um, the people who have done this research point to this as a linguistic style that uh, really effective leaders seem to have, where they are focused on, on others, they are socially and collectively oriented, and they are confident in nature. And so together, this pattern of sort of confident, other-oriented language seems to be the type of language that chaplains use that is of most benefit to patients. And so then the next question, of course, is does our training program affect that? And it does seem like it does. So chaplains who have gone through CCSH training use more of these types of language than chaplains who haven't. And so there's so much to do to try to understand that, but it's, it's some of our newer research that 
um, we're really excited about because it's not something we could have asked chaplains about or um, we really could have known without uh, studying it in this way. Right. That's so interesting. And so are the outcomes for the patients psychological outcomes? Or are they clinical outcomes? Yeah, good question. So the finding that I was just referencing is uh, with depression symptoms. So mm. we measure patient distress level before the chaplain goes in, and then we give them depression inventories afterward. And what we see is benefit primarily in terms of depression symptoms, but then we also see benefit in terms of some more positive psychological factors like self-efficacy to handle difficult emotions and, and some of these more positive psychology factors or constructs. And do you have any plans to incorporate any biological sampling with this population? Yeah. Great question. Um, it would be so interesting to incorporate biomeasures. Um, again, we really have our eye closest to patient burden in this research because many of the patients that we're doing research with are, are severely ill. And so it's really difficult to ask them to provide a, you know, a biological sample. But we have done some preliminary looking at chart data that we can collect. Um, and we haven't seen anything yet. Those kinds of data are a lot messier. But you know, some of the questions when you start to move into a public health domain with really big samples would be things like, do patients' length of stay decrease? Um, you know, does their use of pain medication uh, and, and especially opioid medications, uh, is that reduced for patients who see a chaplain and in particular see a chaplain who's particularly compassionate? So you need really big samples to, to ask those kind of questions. And we're, we're in the process of trying to do that kind of work. Oh, very cool. And then for the things that you found where these particular um, styles of speaking and words, word choice and things like that, you're finding that, th that they're having more benefit for the patients. Are you then going to like loop back that into the training so that you specifically encourage that kind of thing? That's such a fantastic question because that's exactly one of the things that's on our mind. You know, I have these incredible mentors like Chuck Grayson. And, you know, one of his earliest insights was that this is an iterative process. You know, we can use what we're learning to then go back and further refine the training, or it can be used in, in other types of training. And so, especially given what we're finding, if it is the case that there is this sort of confident leadership type of communication that is particularly effective, can we ramp that up even more? Can we identify how that is trained up? How is it that chaplains come to feel comfortable and, and likely to speak with these types of linguistic patterns? Um, and so you're so right. Yeah, that's exactly where our mind is, is, you know, what can we do with these to even improve on, on what we're doing so far? Well, wow, I really love this research. It's so multifaceted and, you know, it's such a complex situation that you're trying to get a handle on scientifically, which is so challenging. And I love the approaches that you're, you're bringing into it. I'm also just thinking about, you know, COVID and the pandemic for the last several years and the extraordinary toll that that's taken on healthcare workers. Um, and this is, you know, the system that you're working in. So I'm wondering if has that played in as well with the chaplain's work and any extension into the, the other healthcare staff? Definitely. Um, in ways that I couldn't have imagined, you know, when I started to work in the medical setting, part of the impetus and the motivation was 
trying to understand what bolsters sustainable compassion among healthcare providers, because it's so clear that compassionate healthcare is a huge part of what helps patients feel better. And yet the systems that we live in and the systems that providers work in provide so many barriers to compassion. So that was already on our mind. The the second reason it was already on our mind is because a huge part of what hospital chaplains do is not just address the suffering and needs of patients and their family, but also healthcare providers and provider teams. So if there is grief, an unexpected death, um, if there is conflict, the uh, healthcare chaplains are often in the position to, to help with that. So that was already on our mind and something we were interested in, but the pandemic just put that on steroids. And so healthcare providers are experiencing and have experienced so much moral injury and moral distress during the pandemic. And, you know, burnout is off the charts, but even beyond burnout, you know, um, just the feeling of, of working in an unsafe morally distressing environment has absolutely taken a toll and and we all have seen that. So a lot of what we've been doing more recently is trying to see whether this compassion-centered spiritual health training and intervention can be leveraged for healthcare provider teams. And we're using similar methods as we use with patients to try to understand what's beneficial, but it's it's very clear that hospital chaplains are in a fantastic place to try to address the needs of individual healthcare providers, but also of teams that really need to work together with kindness and compassion and efficiency um, to really be mm. successful. So yeah, that's that's what we've been doing a lot of recently. Wow. Yeah. The chaplains just seem like such an amazing group of folks and all of the services and help that they provide in that arena. Yeah. It, I will never forget the experience of my mentors uh, and colleagues bringing my awareness to this. Uh, one of my colleagues told me that at the time, chaplains in our healthcare system saw 120,000 patients in the previous year. And, oh my gosh. And, and now it's even more. And they see almost that many providers and staff. And so you start to realize the amount of immense effort and care that they provide. And then also what an incredible potential there is for bringing new practices and for optimizing care that they have. So yeah, my jaw hit the floor when I heard those numbers. And really, we've never looked back because it, it just is staggering. Another case of people around me doing amazing stuff that I, I didn't appreciate until really having it pointed out to me. Yeah. So as we're kind of coming to a close, I, I was wondering for you, how engaging, you know, with research around compassion and, and thinking about this for so long in your career, how has this changed you and your maybe experiences of compassion or just the way you look at it? Yeah, I mean, I just an, another example of why I feel so incredibly fortunate. Um, it, it would be impossible for this not to affect me in um, ways that I benefit from so much. So one thing is, um, you know, it's it's wonderful to have a professional excuse to practice mindfulness and compassion meditation, and, and so that's just a great joy. Uh, and and to be around, you know, compassionate people uh, who are doing this type of research can't help but rub off on you. The other cool thing that uh, I've noticed more recently 
real examples of it are ways that the scientific literature on compassion um, almost primes me to notice things that happen in daily life. So mm. uh, things that I, I wouldn't necessarily have noticed uh, without sort of knowing the research on compassion, um, you know, it, it helps me feel slightly more compassionate than I would be otherwise. Um, it helps me notice compassionate people around me um, that I wouldn't have noticed otherwise. Um, and both of those are just of such uh, great benefit. And, and I just, uh, it's, it's hard to overstate uh, how lucky I feel to be able to do that and, and experience that. Yeah, I, I love when you immerse yourself in these fields. And then, like you said, there's kind of a priming effect and, and you start to notice things in the world that have been around you the whole time, you know, all the time, but now you're more attuned. And it's kind of making me think back to we were speaking about earlier in the compassion training, kind of helping people to see interconnectedness in the world. And like you said, see compassion that, it, you know, already exists in the world and the care that is shown to all of us all the time and kind of just interdependence as opposed to feeling like these reified separate selves. And um, I don't know what your experience is, you know, being involved in, in these trainings, but it feels to me like the more we can approach that view, living into that reality of interconnectedness, compassion is such a natural emergence in that state, right? It feels much more like you don't have to work at it. I don't know. I, I feel like this is something the Dalai Lama has maybe referred to as wise selfishness. I can't remember the term he uses. I think that's it. Whereas you are in some way connected to everything. So caring and extending compassion is also beneficial to you, you know? So I don't know. What, what do you think about just the natural kind of organic emergence of compassion? Right. Absolutely. So, um, one thing you said that I think is really important is um, sort of intentional priming and set of thought experiences that has us notice how interconnected we are um, and just the profound nature of that awareness where compassion then naturally can emerge in ways that it wouldn't if we are so fractured and and so primed for the opposite, the in-group, out-group dynamics that are so harmful. Um, so I think that is one factor that I, I totally agree is hugely important, especially this day and age where um, we are fractured um, intentionally and unintentionally in so many ways. And then, yeah, the point about why selfishness is so well taken as well, because it becomes quite clear, it naturally emerges from that awareness of interconnectedness um, that we benefit so much more from uh, orienting to our, our common humanity. Um, we, our emotions and our, our own well-being is so vastly improved by that orientation. And with the cultivated awareness, we start to notice those things. Um, and, and I think you're you're so right that that is one of the fundamental principles and facets of all of this that has the most potency for addressing the, the problems of our, of our time, the things that are causing suffering to so many. And as, as you're just speaking, it's occurring to me that maybe to frame it as selfishness isn't even quite 
the thing because it's almost like the self starts to dissolve. It's not like you're just doing it to help yourself. It's that actually it's just this interconnected system <laughs> that we're all a part of. Absolutely. And let's take care of it and make it better. Yeah. Absolutely. And and you start to notice the sort of tapestry of ways that that awareness can touch upon so many different problems that we're, we're all facing. So yeah, the, the dissolution of that sort of uh, me versus them attitude that, that evolution has hardwired into us, by the way, um, the, the, the intentional dissolution of that, um, it, it really is uh, probably one of the most effective things for pulling on the threads of that tapestry of suffering that are hurting so many. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. Thank you so much for all oh. of your work. And uh, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to to speak about? Oh, I'm sure there is, but mostly just there are so many incredible people that I'm working with and, and have the good fortune to work with. So there will be really good stuff to come from our team, mostly because um, we have these incredible uh, young scholars and, and mentors who um, just are fantastic. Um, so I just huge hats off to them and, and appreciation of, of all the different people that you and I both get to work with who are so amazing. Well, we will stay tuned to the future of your work. I think it's fantastic and so important working, especially in the healthcare space is so needed today. So thank you for everything you're doing and thank you for taking the time to chat today. Oh, it's been lovely. Thank you, Wendy. It's always wonderful. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. And music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated, and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>